Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. What's the difference between storytelling and story doing? Kit Krugan built and led organizations and cultures design practices at Co-Collective, a creative and strategic transformation consultee. She has led transformations initiatives from big companies to big causes. She has worked with fast-growing startups and leading technology giants like IBM, LinkedIn, Microsoft, and social justice and gender equality nonprofits like Lower East Side, Girls Club, and WIN, Women in Innovation. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Kit. Hi, Dylan. Hey, it's good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. I'm I'm excited to um, actually learn about your journey about purpose and storytelling versus story journey and story doing. Can you please talk to me a little bit about your journey to kick things off? Yeah, sure. And and trust me, story doing is a journey too. So you've got it right. <laughs> you've got it right. Um, yeah. So in terms of my journey, I've been mm. working in the people space for my entire career, um, but I actually began. Um, in thinking about creative management, working with chief creative officers to think about how do you build the most innovative and creative teams? How do you unlock creative potential? How do you think about management at the border of um, constraint and um, creativity? So mm. the majority of my career, I did that. And then I became a head of people. So I was in kind of the, the HR space. And then from there, I actually built and launched the organization and culture design practice at Co-Collective. And so we focus on how do we think about the structures and the systems and the processes that support innovation, that support purpose, and that help organizations achieve their potential and create better environments and communities. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. The, I mean, talk to me about the intersection of innovation and purpose. You know, how do mm. they correlate? How do they synergistically, how are they opposed? How does that work? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question and one that we talk about a lot in our work at Co. So when we think mm -hmm. about purpose, we, we believe that purpose is essential to building strong organizations, strong communities, um, and delivering the winning in the market even. Um, but the, the thing is that purpose can be a, an incredibly, it, it can be an incredible motivator, but it's also an incredible filter. So mm -hmm. we often think about purpose also as a filter for the white space that you can innovate in. So how do you think about the right areas for you to either develop product innovation, develop um, process innovation, et cetera, through the lens of what the broader purpose of what you are actually trying to achieve in the world. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, purpose is is a wonderful in theory until it meets against <laughs> desires and money and all these other situations. Can you talk to me about a time that someone had to filter out an amazing opportunity because they chose purpose over profit? Mm. I mean, there's a lot of examples out there in terms of um, organizations that have that have made those choices. I think, you know, one of the things that we work with a lot of our clients on is how do you find a purpose that really resonates with your market fit and what mm -hmm. your customers are looking for and and, um, and how do you ensure that you're then using that as a filter to all the choices that you make? In terms mm -hmm. of a, in in terms of a concrete example, um, when I look out at the marketplace, I think, you know, we 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 have a new podcast um actually that our uh, founder has been leading called bullshit and it's mm -hmm. really all about closing the gap between um what you say and what you do which is the concept of story doing and he's he's pointed to a couple of organizations i think one of the first episodes is about facebook in particular that has really been uh, initially about thinking about build bringing the world together in terms of their mm -hmm. purpose and how in terms of what actually happened when rubber hit the road and what they built, um, created a massive bifurcation politically, et cetera. And so I, I think that's a that's one example I look to in terms of when you when you say a purpose, but then it's actually very difficult to to make it happen in reality. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that's a challenge you're talking at at scale, right? It's mm. uh, Facebook has something that's that's widely available, and it seems to be the the larger you grow, the harder it is to actually keep culture and keep purpose. I know with Google, there was do no evil, do no evil, do no, we're just gonna go ahead and quietly take that off the books and we're gonna just 
entertain some evil. Mm -hmm. So let me ask the questions like how do you how do you keep this culture at scale? How do you keep this purpose at scale? Mm. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. One, what you were just saying made me reflect on the fact that historically, a lot of organizations have had CSR, right? The corporate social mm -hmm. responsibility. And mm -hmm. they've thought of those as really separate. Um, it's sort of like, okay, you're doing these profit-related activities, and then you're also, to counterbalance it, doing purpose-related activities. And what we're seeing in, in our clients and also in the world right now is those two vectors coming closer together. And in a lot mm -hmm. of the work that we do, trying to put purpose really at the center of everything, the organizational ecosystem, the operating model, et cetera, is critical in, in terms of actually thinking about closing that kind of bullshit gap that we talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of scale, which is really what you asked about, um, I think, you know, I, I just want to stress, and this is, you know, we talk about challenges with culture, we talk about challenges with um, purpose, but there is no perfect organization. There's also no organization where every single person is happy. And, you know, we have, we've never gone into an organization, even ones that are incredibly successful, who, who are mission-driven, who are mission-centered, purpose-centered, without hearing some of the challenges that they face, whether that be silos, whether that be communication, whether that be um, resource constraints, et cetera. And so it's all about where you are on the journey and the intentionality that you put into designing those systems, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. you can at the outset, and this is when we get to talking about scale, you can at the outset have a vision of what kind of organization you want to create and what kind of people you want to attract to that organization. And then build and build and build and go farther and farther away from those core premises that you originally envisioned. And, mm -hmm. and for me, it's about going back to that and saying, A, is this still true? Is this still relevant? Does this still matter? Does this matter to our people? Um, what do we need to change? And then how do we bring our organization back in line with that change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really interesting thing to look at too, because you drift. You have things that drift. people wander. And generally speaking, anything that has power right? Anything is power. Uh, anybody, uh, uh, someone that's very attractive for whatever reason, someone that has a lot of money, someone that has a lot of influence generally drifts because no one is really going to call their bullshit. Mm. That's one of, the, one of the biggest challenges that people face. Mm. And so uh, can you talk to me about a time or do you have anything? Because culture really happens at the top. Mm. Have you have you been able to integrate these, you know, we have a purpose, we have a mission, we're going to all be equal, we're going to great. All right, CEO, you're getting the same pay as everybody else. Whoa, 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 right? Can you talk to me about a time that a CEO or how you actually get leaders to eat their own dog food? Mm. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is you said something that I just want to just put a point on, which is you sure. said culture gets created at the top, 100%. Yeah. Leadership modeling is one of the things that we talk to all of our clients about, that the way that you model is critical um, mm. and that that sets the tone, it shapes the culture, et cetera. But I also believe that it, it's more like a sandwich because every single person that you bring into the organization is shaping your culture dynamically too. And so I do think there is a misconception that it only is shaped at the top um, as opposed mm -hmm. to a systemic thing that individuals can contribute to, add to, and build from. So I just mm -hmm. want to stress that. Um, in terms of the question that you asked directly about leadership and, and mm -hmm. leadership, uh, what was the phrase you used? Kind Eating of, their own dog food. Yeah. Um, think of a good example for you. I think that, you know, I think when we talk about leadership modeling, a lot of, you know, without giving specific examples, what I, what I will say is a lot of the times we have leaders ask us questions like mm -hmm. we want, we want our employees to behave in this way. Mm -hmm. And my question back to them is, okay, are you willing to behave in that way? Um, if, you know, if you're seeing that, I'll give an example, like organizational burnout, um, and this is a, if you're seeing organizational burnout and you don't understand why employees aren't drawing better boundaries or they're not taking time off, you have to look to the leadership and say, are you, um, mm -hmm. or if you see managers sending really, really late night emails and you want them to be respectful of the boundaries of, of employees underneath them, you say, well, are you, because we have to be willing to model that at the top in order to see that behavior perpetuated through the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. It's one of those things, though. It's one thing to say. It's another thing to actually do it. And then, yeah. and that's the do as I say, not as I do, the ultimate parent conundrum that people yeah. face. And if you can make more uh, food-related analogies, I'd appreciate that. That <laughs> really helps for me, you know, as we go through the <laughs> no process. No problem. Yeah, that'd, be, that'd be fantastic. It'd be delicious. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And as, as we go through and we, we do this, but looking at that really is you're talking about this organizational thing where you say, okay, will you actually respect the boundaries? Will you actually do the things that you say you're going to do in order to create this change? And you're talking about, yes, it is a sandwich, but it is weighted towards the top because at mm -hmm. the bottom, if you, if you don't like that bottom slice of bread, you just throw that piece of bread away and you get a new slice of bread. Very, mm -hmm. very rarely do you grab a new top slice and put it at the top unless they really piss off the stockholders or anybody else and there's some sort of major revolt that goes on. And so is there, has there ever been a time where you, you've seen a CEO have to hold to the guns and defend themselves against the, the almighty, well, I'm, I'm making the ultimate decision that will protect our stockholders, which is AKA make lots of money um, mm. in lieu for, let's just say, um, I'm not, well, I will pull out names because I'm okay with that. If you say, oh, okay, you know, we, we, we're all about, you know, cultural doing social good, but we're going to have child labor. Right. Mm -hmm. We're going to do child labor overseas because, hey, we're going to protect all the people inside of the U.S. But you know what? You really want those Nikes super cheap. So we're going to bring them in at a fraction of the cost because, you know, we're trying to save on money because ultimately we're here to make money and we're all about business. So it's legal in, you know, Afghanistan. So that's what we're going to do. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, from a client perspective, I, you know, I think, and we're we're in a privileged position um, yeah. that we have put that filter on our on our work to say that we generally tend to work with clients who already have that purpose filter and that purpose lens and are yeah. and are really working to do it or working yeah. with us to do it. And so, I I don't have examples in terms of like our own clients to share. Um, right. I, I'm I'm sure you wish I did, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would be interesting. Um, but but I have definitely observed and, and witnessed and, yeah. and followed along. Um, you know, one example that comes to mind mm. is that we talked about in some just external case studies is is Boeing and thinking about um, you know one of their key values is safety. And if you saw what happened a couple of years ago around um, some of the the Boeing. Mm. crashes. Mm. There was a there was a great analysis, which I highly recommend people reading in the New York Times about what happened within the culture that enabled a system where safety wasn't the priority. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's a really strong example of how culture can start to shift the priorities of the individual managers that leads to kind of catastrophic errors. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's it, the thing is that there's a initial principle and then pressures get pushed. Like we've got to get this, yeah. you know, product, this craft, this thing out there X amount of time. And then there's really, I mean, it's lives on the line and then it happens and then you know because they think they can get away with it it's that it's the analogy of taking a you know one bolt out of the plane what's the big deal you yeah know, and you do it enough times and then there's a catastrophic event that can happen yeah you know. well you know people within the organization are not necessarily connected to that catastrophic outcome when they're making these small decisions which are about you know speed and and cost over um over safety and then it's only when you see the consequences that you are and that's one of the bigger challenges that we have as a business is the diffusion of responsibility, mm. right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at that thing at a, at a layer, at a, at a high level, right? And yeah. it, right now it's like, oh, I, I just worked there. It's not, I, you know, <laughs> I just, I just worked there. I didn't do, I didn't pull the gun. I just, I just created the bullet. I didn't, mm. I just, I didn't, I didn't fire the gun. I just, I just put it in the bullet. I didn't, you know, pop, 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 you know? Yeah. So, you know, have you, have you, you know, do you, do you ever have any recommendations for some sort of accountability in place if some people do step over the line or any ways of checks and balances that there is a system in place to say, hey, because you can say it, you can kind of do it, but then what happens if you just stop doing it? You know, it's one of the number one things that our clients ask us about is a culture of accountability. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think for a reason, which is if you really want your employees to feel a sense of ownership, I mean, I think we talk about in startups, there's always this idea of like owner and founder culture. Mm -hmm. um, how do you create a sense of shared ownership, et cetera? And, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot is accountability is created in a couple of different ways. Number one, accountability is created through transparency. So the more information that individuals have, the more they can feel a sense of ownership and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Accountability is also created through alignment. Um, we talk about a concept all the time in the practice called aligned autonomy, which is like, what is the level of alignment that you need at the altitude, at the highest altitude of the organization that actually empowers people within the organization to make decisions? <laughs> so that means like a clear understanding of the principles, a clear understanding of the parameters, the constraints, but not necessarily a prescriptive way of saying, this is how you do it. And that enables people at the local level to make choices that are aligned with where you're trying to go, a clear strategy, a clear set of principles of how you make decisions, but empowers them to actually take ownership of those decisions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, you tell them the what, but not the how. Yeah, right? ex essentially, essentially. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, so you're saying, okay, this is where we need to go. You figure out a way to get there, and here's why it's important, and then they kind mm -hmm. of get up running. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Do you have an example of anything where it comes around radical transparency? Is there anything that you've seen, whether, you know, any of your clients or anything else that you've seen something that has allowed for radical transparency? I think inviting people into the numbers as much as possible in general, we've seen that be really, really successful. I think it's really easy when you can't see um, financial outcomes, when you can't see the cost um, to make an argument that it doesn't make sense where why certain decisions are being made. Um, and so we've seen a lot of success in terms of understanding the numbers and the financials and how mm. the business actually creates value and makes money. Mm. Uh, we've also seen a lot of great success around transparency about failure, of course, you, you know, for, especially for innovation, um, seeing very candid examples. I think Netflix has a, a really good example um, around where they actually really encourage people to do little tours of why something failed and mm. why they took that risk. And that actually incentivizes people to make, take more risks and, and be more innovative. And so we definitely encourage folks to think about what, what transparency are you choosing to have and why, and what do you hope that it will motivate? That's great. And with that, I mean, encouraging failure is awesome because you're creating psychological safety. And as we know, psychological safety is one of the number one indicators for performance growth, right? We're looking for ways. Yeah. How do we create, how do we create a, an area of safety so that people can go to it? Has it ever been where transparency has gone too far, where it actually has a negative impact. Mm, definitely. I, you know, transparency is a complicated thing. I always think of it as like walking a, a tightrope. I, I, I tend to believe in erring on the side of more transparency, but you need to think about the consequences of what you share. And so I think that I, I've most often seen transparency be challenging when you haven't, when people or leaders share something, but they don't share, you mentioned the why, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm transparent about something, but I'm not telling you why it matters. I'm not telling you why it matters to you. And I'm not telling you what you can and cannot input on. So for instance, if something's already been decided and we're being transparent because we're sharing it with you, that we're not necessarily inviting feedback. Um, you know, one downside of if you share something completely in um, in motion, then you are inviting feedback on it potentially and saying that it's not finished, it's not done. And so you need to also have a mechanism for collecting that feedback, channeling that feedback, um, and then putting it back into the system. And if you don't have that, then what backfires is people feeling like they have the opportunity to feedback and offer solutions, but then they feel very demoralized when that feedback is not listened to. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You feel a sense where you are there. It becomes meaningless. Your input becomes mm -hmm. meaningless because it has no point. You're you put out you put out the feedback without any response, without any actual output. Mm -hmm. You're like, why try? I mean, uh, voting, you know, is one of the yeah. big things that people complain about. Right. Mm -hmm. My point is now there's there's a it's whatever matter. reasons. Yeah. Whatever reason they're associated. There's no point. It's pointless. So why even mm -hmm. try mm -hmm. now? Let's counterbalance that. Let's counterbalance that with looking at the point of you know making collective decisions versus focusing on a single vision right mm -hmm. and so like if if there's a group vote and say elon elon musk is you know spacex versus one person one steve jobs vision one person so i mean there's pros and cons there and i'd love to talk about a little of those things of you know trying to decide as a collective Mm -hmm. Right. And and actually leading with one person's vision and being able to take, ex, you know, extraordinary risks into a certain direction. Mm. I like the fact that you pointed out that there are pros and cons. We talk a, a lot about that in all the work that we do around organizational mm -hmm. design, system design, that there's not necessarily one right one, but rather it's a set of choices. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the choices associated with like singular visionary leadership versus more collective consensus based collaborative leadership, it it's the pros and cons are really clear, right? With singular visionary leadership, you have high level of decisiveness. So much faster speed to market, um, much clearer direction, oftentimes clearer accountability and responsibility because you can just say, do this, you do this, here's where we're going and show me how to get there. Um, so in some ways you you see both more empowerment um, and faster decision-making. You also can see less empowerment in feeling like you don't have a voice or you don't, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think, um, even at senior levels in the organization, if somebody has a singular vision and no matter what you say, they're going to do it and they're going to execute and your job is just to make it happen. Mm -hmm. When you have uh, decisions by consensus or a high level of collaboration, we work with a lot of organizations who have a ton of collaboration. And one of the biggest challenges that we see is slow decision making. 
Um, we also see burnout because uh, when you invite a lot of people into the process, that means more meetings for those people, more feedback opportunities. And all of a sudden you have people with back-to-back -back meetings on their calendars being asked to weigh in on every single decision and you, everything's taking a really long time. And it's also um, involving a lot, a lot of voices. So, mm. you know, one other result too, is you could see dilution of ideas, right? You have people want to have their say, or it, it's considered valuable to contribute or shape the idea. And therefore you see kind of a um, degradation of the quality of thinking. That's interesting. Yeah. And that, I like that if you look at the both sides of the equation, because one of them, you know, with the uh, quote unquote visionary, AKA the dictator pushing yeah. through an idea, you have speed to execution, you have mm -hmm. clarity, right? Which creates a lot, a lot of certainty, which then people can then be able to say, okay, give me my task, ready, set, go, give me the ball. I'm going to go run down the field, you know, give me the bread. I'm gonna go make the sandwich as we go through these um, mm -hmm. analogies. But then on the other side of things that you're, if you're co-creating that, then you have the, the, the dreaded, the dreaded meetings, mm. the, 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 the meetings where, you know, is the, it is the, one of the biggest necessary evils that people <laughs> have They they want to have their input, but they don't want so many uh, meetings, right? They wish they could just kind of weigh in at a distance and just kind of, you know, literally peanut gallery, you know, yeah. throw, their, throw their peanuts into the field and just let it go from there. Um, from the situation because there is so much of that burnout like not another meeting I just want to go and you get this all ramped up and so you have all this energy and then you have this fatigue where mm. more, more people are are trying to deliberate versus actually execute and it seems to be a very difficult balance with that situation do you mm. have some sort of recommendation solution guidance mm. feedback strategy mm. around doing meetings in a meeting ratio that makes sense in a, in a healthy environment mm. Um, yeah. One thing I want to say though, is I didn't talk about the positive side of collaboration and I just want to okay. give a shout out to the positive side of collaboration, yeah, which, is, which is you have much more diversity in terms of the voices that are being heard. And so mm -hmm. from a, from a creative potential too, you also see that ideas get shaped in a really new way. Um, and you also have a lot of feeling of ownership and empowerment, um, and the opportunity to really like shape things as they go along. So that's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a, pros and cons. Um, yeah. Now I will answer your question about meetings. Um, just didn't want collaboration to get a bad rep. Um, Fair. Meetings. Okay. Here's what I think about meetings, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no right ratio for across the board, across organizations. Right now we are in a crisis of meetings. And part of the reason we're in a crisis of meetings is because we've embraced this hybrid form of work uh, where meetings are trying to do too much, where we're trying, they're used for socializing, they're used for doing work, they're used for connecting. And they're the only kind of mechanism for us to, to contribute. Now, what I would say about that is in general, meetings lack intentionality. They lack a, why are we coming here? And it's not just about the agenda. It's actually about like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to make a decision? Are we trying to get to know each other? Are we trying to exchange ideas? So I always encourage people, there's tons of meetings on your calendar that don't need to be there. If you do a meeting audit and say, do I really need to be in this? And what is the reason? And what are we trying to do here? You could probably clear off 25% of those meetings. Mm. It's a good move. Yeah. And then, you know, would you have recommendations? Because you're talking about this when you have a meeting. So, okay. All right, everybody, we're here for this meeting. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason why we've come together is this. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a bit of the structure. And here's the result we're hoping for at the end. And that's the, and if you have someone come in there and do that, that would be the one that most helpful. Is there any other pieces about the meeting process that would really help uh, uh, make that more tolerable? For going with the food metaphor, I think, of a, I think of a great meeting or any gathering like hosting a great dinner party, right? If, if you're the host, you know, you set the tone. You mm. tell the people what you want to achieve. You invite them into the space. You're holding the space for them. Mm -hmm. And you're setting the tone. You're figuring out what you actually want to achieve. And you're navigating that experience for them. So it's the same thing, right? It's a, it's it, You can't even just drop in the, here's what we're doing, and then step out. You also, as the meeting host, need to continue to ensure that you're on track to achieve that. Understand that when you go off that, that might be okay. And you decide. Right? Or do you pull people back in and that has the other result? Mm, got it, got it. So, a party host, right? You're making mm -hmm. sure, okay, 
yeah. agenda what we want to do and you guide people through check in mm -hmm. on everybody make sure everyone's doing good wrap up at the end serve some okay. drinks yeah. serve some drinks social lubricant as they say <laughs> right let's talk right. about that the the storming and forming of team formations right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. getting people together turning strangers into friends through the process of these social connective activities do you have any recommendations mm -hmm. um for uh creating a more cohesive or a more bonded team Definitely. I mean, this this is true of both meetings and team building, but I always open a meeting if it's a workshop um, or just a team meeting with one question or something that everybody has to answer because there's something I tell this to every team I ever work with. There's something very important about share of voice being distributed at the outset. Power dynamics and groups are built very quickly. <laughs> And so for me, I find it very important to make sure that every single person has the opportunity to contribute because otherwise there's an anxiety of like, oh, when am I going to say something? When am I not going to say something? So whether you do that through thoughtful introductions or mm. where it's about answering a question or whether it's about some kind of this is what this work means to me, it, it, you know, the question itself, it doesn't matter as much as the fact that everyone gets to speak and you take that opportunity to go around. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because you're, you're getting that level of engagement and you know, they mm -hmm. contribute and then they're, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's everyone's throwing um, their personal ingredient into the stew. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. There you that's go. There, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we, and also, we? yeah, we got it. Yeah. And also? No, and I was saying, and also just understanding that people have very different learning styles and contribution styles, right? There are some mm -hmm. people and when we design, we do a lot of workshopping. So when we design workshops, we always think about how do we make sure that we're giving people who are verbal mm -hmm. um, contributors space? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that we're giving people who like to write space? And how are we giving people who like to work in small groups space? How do we make sure that we've created space for people to do silent ideation? Because then you get a broader diversity of input if you provide a broader diversity of modality. Mm, got it. So then once you do that, I mean, I guess... Um trying to understand the ways that you actually do that. Is that, is that a pre-did survey or is that some sort of way to, you know, gather the information? Are there, are there different types of, uh, you, you, you named a couple types of personality types or methodologies there. Could you, is there a set number, you know, five big personalities, <laughs> 16 personalities? What, how do you, how do you really understand those types? Yeah. So Listen, there's generally, I mean, I, with every organization, every team is very different. But mm. one thing I can say with confidence is generally within any group, people who are more vocal, people who are less vocal, people who need information in advance in order to process, people who like to process on the spot, um, people who do their best work in talking one-on-one -on -one to someone else, and people who do their best work in silently reflecting and writing. And so just even thinking about those modalities, if you're, if you're designing an hour-and-a-half workshop, if you're in person, you can think about um, doing, you know, having a whiteboard, sticky noting, et cetera. You can have silent reflection in part. You can break people out into groups and you can do the same thing virtually, right? We use Mural all the time. We use Miro all the time, um, collaborative uh, tech that enables you to do silent ideation, then come together, then share screen, then go apart, then break people out into groups in Zoom. So yeah. just ensuring you're changing it up. Yeah. And uh, for anybody listening, the Mural is a application, basically a digital online whiteboard that people can co-collaborate on and throw in ideas, opinions, thoughts, videos, photos, video, all that stuff. So, yeah. yeah so I just want to get that one out in case you go, what's Mural? You know, get yeah. that one going. Uh, yeah. Um, it's a, a collective buffet. <laughs> so. Uh, with with all of that saying, you know, one of the things looking at too is I touched on it earlier, but I do want to dive back to it about psychological safety, yeah. right? And and the situations where, you know, uh, it's sometimes hard when you you have an opinion in these in these groups that you may not think is well received, especially when someone else has a position of power over you, mm -hmm. or if someone is doing something, uh, whether in a meeting or in a situation that they need to be given some critical feedback, right? How do you how do you manage those situations such where you can actually still be able to do that while creating psychological safety? Yeah, the way that I think about it is, you know, you, you talked about leadership modeling and uh, mm -hmm. leaderships are really, leadership is really critically tasked with modeling 
mm-hmm. um, vulnerability, modeling, um, safety in the group. And part of that is literally how you respond when people take a risk. And in order to think about how you respond when people take a risk, you need to understand that people are taking a risk. And in order to understand that people are taking a risk, you need to understand the power dynamics in the room. The number one mistake that I think leaders make is not recognizing their own power. Um, mm. you, you forget, honestly, yeah. you forget. If you're in yeah. a leadership position, you forget. Um, or you're not aware, right? It's like privilege. It's, you forget it because you don't know. Yeah. You, you adapt to it and you're not used to it and you just it's just it just is what it is and you're not paying attention to it and then things happen because there's generally a lot of pressure at the top and it sometimes trickles down to people and you're yeah. unaware of it and you don't know how to communicate so it yeah. makes a lot of sense you become unaware and then out goes something yeah I mean imagine Dylan to so say you know you and I were on a team mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, you and I are the co-CEOs of this great sure. team and someone someone said you were talking about something we're really excited about something we just created this new dinner party and it Mm -hmm. has all this great food because obviously we both like food and we're talking about it and someone who's maybe new to the organization or a junior team member says well you know what i'm actually not i'm not sold that that's the right idea Mm -hmm. and what we don't realize because we're just we're just stoked we're not recognizing that we're the creators of this context and that we're powerful in this moment we're not recognizing that they just took a huge risk. And not only mm. are they waiting to see how we respond, but the entire team is waiting to see how we respond. And if we're like, oh, like, no, like, that's ridiculous. This is the right idea. Like, can't believe you said that. Like, don't be, a, don't be such a hater, whatever we say, right? Um, then you're not going to see people speak up again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, th- throw in a verbal pie at them. Get an egg on the yeah, face. All yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So you yeah. just, you know, you just say, "Wow, like I love, I love that you're bringing a different idea. Like, thank yeah. you so much. I really acknowledging that you're challenging the way that we're thinking, and I want to see more of that." Yeah, that's great. That's a really good one too, because there is generally that thing of that resistance going, you know, that mm-hmm. someone pushes back, especially people, you know, have these ideas. And one of the things I've always uh, tried to hold on to is an idea is never as important as you think it is while you're thinking it. There's some these really hard attachments that people have when they hold on to things and like, it's gotta be yeah. this way. If not, everything's on fire. And then so mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a really good point. And so it's celebrating, the, celebrating people's opinions and celebrating where they're at mm-hmm. and, 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 sh- and, and just really letting people know it's safe. It's good. We're mm-hmm. here. Yeah. This is wonderful. Okay. Yeah. I love that. You know, shifting gears just a little bit with the with um, the co collective there. I mean, you can you talk to me just a little bit about um, the co collective's purpose and how you actually came about forming that. Mm, yeah, so Co's been around now for eleven years, um, mm-hmm. and Co was founded by Rosemary Ryan, Ty Montague, and Neil Parker. Um, so, kind of bringing uh, folks with backgrounds across advertising and consulting together to the, this idea mm-hmm. that we wanted to bring business and brand backgrounds into this idea of working farther upstream with clients to help them identify like what is your overarching purpose and how do you actually make that real not just in communications which is saying but actually in action um, mm. and that became you know the foundation for us thinking about how we help our clients not only through thinking about brand and thinking about their business but also thinking about organizational systems and structures so that's kind of how how it ladders through. Um, remind me the second part of your question. Was how did they fo- how how did how did the co collective actually develop its purpose and yeah. what is the purpose? Okay, so our our purpose um, mm. when you know we call it a quest sometimes, but mm. um, is to help the bold truly do, and mm. that is you know each of those words is selected very intentionally um, when we think about. To help, we this idea of a spirit of generosity, a spirit of partnering with our clients um, in in trying to help them achieve what they want to do. When we when we chose the words the bold, we really wanted to work in particular with clients and leaders who had bold ideas and visions, who wanted to challenge the status quo, and who weren't necessarily just trying to fit into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then truly do uh, is this idea that it's we don't want we don't want to help people just say that they're going to do something, but really make it real, make it tangible, make it felt for their communities, um, and and that action is really at the core of of everything that we do. Mm. Mm-hmm. With that, do you have an example of maybe somebody you worked with? You 
do you can name names you don't have to on mm -hmm. on finding someone who's actually truly being bold you know someone who's mm -hmm. actually putting the idea out there that was thought provoking you know because i want to help the world it's not necessarily too bold as a concept mm -hmm. so do you have an example of something that was bold which would then take amount of bravery to be able to set forth and actually accomplish yeah i mean one client that comes to mind from our from our um from our work together is uh, the ACLU. We did we did some really okay. amazing work with the ACLU and and what they mm. were trying to do, especially in the moment um, that we engaged with them was right um, when Trump was elected. Um, so we we they were sort of trying to navigate um, a really critical period in the political landscape and and helping mm. them connect with a younger demographic and a younger audience that was something that. Um, they were really bold about, and we were able to help them think through that. So that's just one example. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So then connecting, connecting with the younger generations, it's interesting because you want to talk about people they'll call bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the younger generation of people, I mean, and how do you, how are you able to connect them, especially large organizations connecting with individual people? That's a, that's a very big challenge because you're basically, you know, you're this many faces trying to have, um, you know, connections to individuals you know what are recommendation thoughts or things around that how you actually are able to connect with the young generation do you have any thoughts around that yeah i mean i think i think the biggest thing we think about is just understanding who you're trying to connect with regardless of whether it's the younger generation or anyone else <laughs> uh, i think it's really easy to start to do what humans do which is grouping right mm -hmm. assuming that everyone is the same and that you know there's a certain perspective that they have and that one group wants this or another group wants this. And so we try to be really thoughtful about the research that we do and really make sure that we understand like what truly are the needs of this group, what are their interests and what's motivating them and how do we help them achieve their goals and find mutual benefit between um, what an organization is trying to do and what that group of people or those group of individuals actually want. Yeah, a group of individuals. Yeah, uh, people generally don't like being labeled as a, as a, you know, as a yeah. thing, this or that, whatever. There's all everyone's all people, but we do have proclivities. We things we are sure. enjoying and being a part of. When you're talking about research, I mean, is this is this online research? Is this like in person type of things? Or how do you can you talk to me a little bit about your process of getting to know these individuals? Yeah. So we've run, uh, we've run over the years, we've run research in a lot of different ways. We've run mm. digital ethnographies. We've run in-person ethnographies. We've done um, focus groups, a lot of focus mm. groups over the years, um, some now more digitally and some in person back in the pre-COVID mm. days. Um, we've also done like large research studies. We, we also partner with some um, deep kind of qual and quant partners when we mm. want to go do a global study in terms of a certain demographic. Mm. Uh, have your research studies or your overall business practice changed during the pandemic and the, and the shift in the way that we do business? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like a lot of other people, we before the pandemic, we really believed uh, in the power of in-person. I think especially as a creatively driven design focused firm, mm. being together in you know the magic of sticky noting on the walls and um bringing people together was something yeah. that we felt was really critical to our work. And we discovered it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, I've always been an advocate of hybrid work. I've always been an advocate of remote work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what what the real gift, I mean, there was a lot of gifts that this very challenging period gave us. But one, one gift is that everybody had to learn how to work in mm -hmm. this modality. And therefore, it's really hard to argue that it didn't work. Because it did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it had to work. It, was, it, it had to work. And right, yeah. you know, like constraints yeah. are constraints are the mother of invention or something like that. Yeah. I felt that mother was like a kicking the baby bird out of its nest going, you're going to figure this out. Yeah. Learn to yeah. fly. Yeah. Yeah. No, so there's a lot of like silver linings from a very difficult period. So. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting in that time that the, the places that struggled the most were usually schools or institutions, people that educate people. On how yeah. to do things struggled the most with actually learning how to do something mm. you know it's an, it's an interesting uh conundrum that we've seen you know yeah i mean i also think that you know i have a lot of friends with young kids and i i feel the most for folks who had to endure the pandemic with kids in the ages of anywhere from like two to 17 because yeah. one place i think digital learning is amazing i think it opens up so much potential uh, so much capability, but 
um, it is really, really difficult to ask a 10-year-old to sit in front of a computer all day without any social interaction other than online and mm -hmm. learn meaningfully. I'm a big believer in experiential learning and um, social learning. And so I just think that was particularly difficult. Yeah. Also, I mean, it's particularly difficult to have kids go to normal school. Hey, go sit in a chair for nine hours and just sit there and well, stare at the board. You know, I'm going to. Right. I'm gonna the problem is more blocks. systemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go a little, yeah. bit, a little bit deeper with that. So, I mean, you're talking about experiential learning. You're talking about that. I mean, how do yeah. you help your clients learn and integrate these lessons in, in the process? Mm. You talked about it. What does that look like? Yeah, we do a lot of co-creation. We bring our clients along for the ride. We help, you know, we're, we're we are not the kind of consultancy that says, "Okay, great, thank you for the input. We'll be off in the corner for 3 weeks and bringing you an off-the-shelf kind of customized solution." We are in it with our clients. We ask them to do work sessions with us. We ask them to sketch things out with us. We pressure test it with them. We build it with them. And to be honest, at the end of the day, that drives much more adoption. It's it's better fit for purpose for the work that they do. And it is more successful in the end. Mm -hmm. So we're big believers in you have to invite people into the kitchen in order to do the work and make it successful. Excellent. And is that is that primarily now still done online and digitally or do you do that in person? Yeah. And online, yeah. we've been, oh, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll probably go back to doing some, some in person. I think there's mm -hmm. great reasons to be in person in terms of actual relationship building yeah. um, and the nuance of being able to build relationships um, in, yeah. in the hallways. But yeah. That's right there is really interesting is because you don't have, you know, uh, Tony Shea from Zappos um, actually had a really good point when he's talking about these spontaneous social interactions. Yeah. And so as you move around from point A to point B through the, you know, through the halls, you have a chance to actually have these these relationships that are built, you know, mm. water cooler talk, conversations yep. coming out of bathrooms. And you know, that's why Pixar was designed to have a center hub so that you had the cross traffic yep. and pollinations, right? Yeah. Know, how would you recommend people do that in the new digital, you know, online era? You know, I don't think it's fundamentally different. Like a mm. digital space is still a physical space, right? And so we, we're on Slack at Co. And to be honest, Slack has become our central forum of collisions, right? You, you collide with each other in channels, you collide with each other in the like general forum, and you need to create some intentionality around it in the same way that you need to create intentionality around physical space. But it still becomes a space. Like when I think of my workplace right now, if I were to just answer, I would say, oh, like I think of the Slack hub as where I go mm. to work. Yeah. 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 Me too. Slack is, yeah. is, is the place. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just very difficult to randomly bump into somebody. It's more of an intentional. Do you have sideboard conversations that have nothing to do with work on Slack? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do, but I think it's, here's, here's what people have discovered. And this is, I find to be very true. Mm. I've been at, I've been at Co for eight years. Mm -hmm. So people who went into a pandemic, having a long tenure in an organization had a much easier time transitioning their social relationships into the digital space. The, the, it's been hardest, and a lot of research has shown this too, that it's been hardest on the newer employees, the employees who are would normally have the opportunity to observe processes, to learn through osmosis, mm. to see leaders talking to each other, to see leaders outside the group that they're in or the team that they're on. And those opportunities are being lost. And so that's where we're really having the difficulty. Like culture modeling. Yeah. No, no mirror neuron activity. Yeah. 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 And that yeah. Is, that's playing a huge role in people's experience of work. Mm. I mean, and with that one, I think I mentioned before, but I want to dive back into it since we're on the topic of this. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you build those people into the culture? How do you have these activities where you bond with the team members? How do you really onboard them into a place where they actually feel like they're a part of the community mm -hmm. and not necessarily talking to a Slack wall? Yeah. So my philosophy about this has been the same since the beginning of the pandemic, which is I think of it like a summer camp model. I, I went on a program a couple of years ago, um, where I was invited with a bunch of other design leaders on a 10-day trip. Mm -hmm. After those 10 days, I am closer with that group of 50 people than I am with people that I've known for 20 years. So mm -hmm. it's it's not actually about quantity of time. You can go to the same office as someone for 10 years straight and not necessarily have a deep relationship with them. It's about how you get to know each other and the context you get to know each other and the intentionality of that time. So I call it the summer camp model. And what I believe people need to do is design intentional ways for their employees to have like radical bonding moments that are not actually work focused at all. Uh, perhaps like high level strategic planning or things that feel really meaty and juicy and exciting, but really focus on getting to know each other as people, experiencing things together, 
And then those relationships are sustained over the digital timeline and you come back mm. together and you do it again. Mm. When you're saying coming back together, you're saying that that's done in person or yeah. you're saying that's just merely an event. Okay. No, I mean like I'm, I'm talking about like a retreat or, okay. you know, offsite, but really one mm. where it's, it's pretty immersive. Like the whole thing is not doing client work together. It's really, or any work together. It's really about getting to know each other and being uh. intentional. Do you have a recommendation for cadences with that? Like how often, when, where, and how? Yeah. So I think that once a year is too infrequent. I would advocate for twice a year, but it depends on the size of the company and like mm. it depends on everything. I mean, for us, we're, we're a boutique. So if, yeah, yeah. Uh, very sad. Absolutely. The, the, the best answers usually involve it depends. Yeah. It's, yeah. It just depends on the organizational needs and what you're trying to achieve. But, Mm, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when people are starting out, right, um, and they're going to make their purpose, they're going to, you know, create their their missions, they're on the missions, they're driving it forward, things like that. What are typical pitfalls, mistakes, trip ups mm. that people make along the path of trying to lead a purpose driven organization? Hmm. Pitfalls. I mean, one thing we see a lot is people accidentally picking very broad, generic purpose <laughs> statements. Um, we try to avoid that in our work because, you know, we've seen a lot of people sharing purpose statements with us that are really the same as every other financial services company or every other airline company. And and you really want something that feels unique to you and unique to your DNA and something you can build from. That's one pitfall. Mm. Yeah. And the, the way we approach developing purpose for companies, if that's helpful, is we look at a couple of vectors. We use a story lens. That's Story is critical to everything we do at Co. And so we look at the what we call the stage, which is the landscape, what's happening in the world, what's happening with your competitors, what should you care about, what matters, what are the external vectors. We look at what we call the protagonist, which is mm. what is unique about you, What is what are the unique culture factors, vectors that you bring in terms of your unique value proposition, your strengths mm. and challenges you might face, right? That we need to overcome. And then we look at your participants. So who are your stakeholders? You know, it could be employees, it could be your customers, it could be investors, the key stakeholders that are going to be either buying into this purpose or, or not. Um, and then the layer that I think other people don't normally look at it, but we do is who is your antagonist? So this isn't about a competitor per se. This is about an idea or a belief. And that helps us really, that's the that's the grounding force for coming up with a purpose. So what do you want to stand against in the world? And that helps you figure out what you're standing for. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, I don't know if you ever read the Bhagavad Gita, but they talk about the Dharma, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah. You're, it's it's the dharma is you know your unique purpose what you stand for mm -hmm. and the, the needs of the time you know what's going yeah. on around you plus you know who what you are and what you do you know the, the antagonist makes a lot of sense because you really find people's value sets when you mm. violate them yeah know? yeah yeah and you know if you think about the companies that are doing this really well it, we always use tesla as an example like Elon Musk's antagonist is clearly the hydrocarbon economy, right? And yeah. so then when when you're you're not a car company, if you're if your enemy is the hydrocarbon economy, you then become an energy company because your purpose is to completely revolutionize the energy ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you have processes or ways that you'd recommend for people to figure out who the enemy is or their, what they're standing like, what they're standing against? I should say. Yeah. I mean, what the way that we do it is just mm. collecting a lot of data and input, um, both from the team internally, but also doing research and figuring out like, what are the potential enemies? What would differentiate us? Um, what do your people care about? What do your stakeholders care about? You know, that question around who your key participants are is really critical in determining mm. the antagonist because you want something that feels galvanizing for people, mm. right? The key is that it cannot be, it has to be an idea. It has to be something that feels, it can't be like, you know, Coke's antagonist can't be Pepsi. <laughs> That's not going to do it. Well, that'd be really interesting. I mean, it kind of, there's, a, well, you're talking about this, you know, what's written on paper mm. versus the social underlining cues that are what people really follow, right? Mm -hmm. So we can have the mission vision statement on the board, but we're about, you know, maximizing profit 
or you know grounding our enemies into the dirt like pepsi if, if it was coke for example i'm not saying it's the case but right. maybe it is maybe it is how do you how do you dig at that underlining social layer of what people follow which is culture yeah i mean that that is a huge part of what we do which is to say like you can you can architect a purpose all day long but if at the end of the day the undercurrent within your organization is that that's just bullshit um then you're not going to get very far right like mm -hmm. people are going to call bullshit there's way more transparency than there ever has been before your customers are going to call bullshit and they're not going to buy from you so you're going to see an economic impact for that too and so that's why you have to take a systemic approach to thinking about this you can't just mm -hmm. say like we have this purpose. It's like, cool. How does it show up in your compensation? How does it show up in your structure? How does it show up in the way that you model as a leadership team? What rituals do you have that actually show that this matters? Do you have an award that it aligns with that purpose? Mm. I love the idea around rituals. I think rituals are a very powerful thing, something that allows people to kind of galvanize, as you said, um, around some sort of meaningful sacred activity. Mm. Do you have any recommendations around rituals for creating alignment with purpose? Mm. I The reason I always list rituals is I think they're one of the, the single most important things that you can do. Like these rituals mm. become a piece of the story of your organization, a piece of the culture. They really become like the tome of the culture. Um, I think the way to think about it, I hate to give you an it depends answer again. So I will try as hard as I can to be specific, sure. but the way that I think about it is you have to do something that you're, that you can sustain mm -hmm. and that can be consistent and that people will take up themselves. So it has to feel like something that is natural and you have to take it seriously. Like you have to repeat it. Um, mm -hmm. It's easy to create a ritual if you, as long as you take it so seriously that you never don't do it. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing, because it's you, people drift, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and people fall in and out of habits or rituals mm -hmm. and along the patterns of the path. And so yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to say, okay, yeah, how do you make something super important that they actually do it? And because and it really does come down to if when things get really hard and people stop doing it, then you get out of the patterns and behaviors and you stop doing that activity. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you're trying to cut corners. So why have that Friday night pizza session with everybody when you can just you know, uh, double down and work throughout the weekend because you got a big project to. Is this, have you seen situations wh where the pressure from the business pushes against the rituals of culture and and uh, resolutions where you've seen anything? You how to actually find a a place that actually works together? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think leaders have to actually constantly regulate themselves on mm -hmm. rituals because, listen, humans are fundamentally there is like a ceremonial. Thing about human like there's there's something about creating any kind of uh system around an action pattern around an action that is very attractive uh to communities mm -hmm. it helps a community it's a glue that helps the community understand a shared identity and so naturally people gravitate towards these habits uh, you know yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example from co yeah. which is sure. we um we have a one of the things that we've made I wouldn't say this is necessarily a ritual, but I will say it's a practice. We have a, we've made a practice of having a no meeting Friday. It's just the first one that comes into mind. Um, no meeting Friday afternoon. Let me clarify. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and but one of the things that we've struggled with is yeah. meetings creep, right? And meetings creep. In, the meeting creep. It's creeping. Oh. And you know, kudos to. Um, the other leadership team in particular, Jamie Hall, who's the managing director of um, business and brand. She's incredible. And she has really held us accountable. She, every time a meeting creeps, she says, we cannot let these meetings creep in. The minute we do, then other people will. And then it is no longer a practice. Mm -hmm. And so that's the level of discipline you have to have. Again, that's mm -hmm. not necessarily like a ritual with any ceremony. Um, yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, we, we every have those too. And those we take very seriously. Yeah, no, there, I mean, anything can be a ritual if it's approached with enough of a sacred mindset. And yes. so yes. it makes, makes a ton of sense there. Uh, when you're looking at that, though, when you're saying you're, you, you have uh, Jamie, 
mm-hmm. who's holding holding the flag down with that. Yeah. Do you do you when you put things into practice to make sure that they they stay there, making sure that they actually do. You mm-hmm. do you know how do you initiate flag holders? How do you how do you make sure that you know, this thing uh, is um, protected and is sacred? Because that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Is there a way that you actually do that when you kick things off, a structure, a format, a, you know? I, I do think assigning accountability, I, I've always found that, you know, having having singular accountability plays mm-hmm. a, a pretty big role in maintaining some of those. But I do think it is disproportionately on leadership to self-moderate and be disciplined. If we've decided something is important to us, we have to continue to signal it's important to us. Yeah. Oh, man, I'd really like to outsource that accountability if possible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I listen. I outsource accountability all the time, right? Like, I use my calendar to create That's accountability. True. So, you can yeah. outsource technology accountability to technology. That's like, fair too. You can actually. We outsource accountability to Slack. We have a couple Slack bots that help us remind. Oh. Um, remind us of things. Oh, that's, that's cool. Amazing solution. I, give me, let me actually give you a concrete example on that one. Yeah. Because, perfect. You know, one of the things that we are really conscious about at Co is our language and the language that we use. And so we've programmed a Slack bot to ping us in the channel visibly to everyone anytime that anyone uses a word that we were trying to shift. So one concrete example is it's very easy to say, hey, you guys, that's but obviously that's not inclusive of, of women or anyone who doesn't mm. identify as a man. And mm. so every time anyone in our in our Slack, in our company Slack says, guys, the Slack bot responds and says, here's some suggestions that can replace that word. Mm. And that's cha- it's changing behavior. It is mm. absolutely changing behavior. It's a, it's a good model. The one thing that, that doesn't really account for is the sentiment behind it. Because what if somebody really <laughs> want to do a Goonies quote? You know, hey, you guys. So. <laughs> then, they could, then they could write underneath like, no, I really meant that as a Goonies quote. <laughs> okay, cool. Slack bot, you're you wrong in this context. <laughs> I'd do the little giffy. You know, the giffy yeah. on the slide. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, then the, right. you wouldn't get caught if you did the, the giffy. You're sneak good. Sneak that in there. Okay. Yeah. Just, just checking. I'll try um, that. I'll try that and see if I get... Let me know. Let me know what happens with that. Let yeah, me know I will. Slack police bots catch you. All right, that's awesome. You, I mean, you're talking about when you're talking about as the mission and purpose um, with the Co Collective. You're saying that the, is to um, help the bold uh, do um, great things. Could you say that again for truly me? Truly do. Truly do. Truly do. Mm-hmm. Truly do. Truly do. Yeah. Help the bold. Truly do. If that's the mission, if that's the holy grail, if that's the flag in the sand where you're helping people achieve that. As the mm. goal, what is mm. the dragon? What is the thing that is so difficult to try to overcome? You don't know if you're necessarily strong enough to overcome it. Well, I mean, you know, if you're asking us what our antagonist is, our our antagonist is bullshit. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. And that's what we identified as the thing that we want to stand against, which is this gap between what people say and what they do, and this things like purpose washing, things like. Um, you Can know. you explain purpose purpose watching a little bit for me? Yeah. So essentially, yeah. it's this idea that. Um, you know, people are getting on the bandwagon of different causes or getting on the wagon of saying we have a positive purpose, but only doing that as kind of an external communication effort and not necessarily living those practices within their organization. So a concrete example of that is a lot of organizations coming out um, around Black Lives Matter and saying like diversity, equity and inclusion really matters to us. And then you look at their leadership team and they have an entirely white male leadership team, white male board, you know, whatever it is. And you say, mm-hmm. well, Obviously, that doesn't really matter to you because you're you're not practicing what you preach. Yeah, yeah. So then, it's, so yeah, the front it's a facade in what mm-hmm. you're talking about. It's something yeah, like that. Yeah, lipstick on a pig. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That makes a ton yeah. of sense. Then, okay. So yeah. then, you're getting to that bullshit. Then, in terms of cr- you know cracking through that bullshit armor um, or that facade of purpose washing, I mean, are there ways that you've been able to help have people become aware of that or bring it mm-hmm. to light and be able to uh, conquer that dragon? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big thing is introducing people to systems thinking and thinking about kind of an operating model that supports um, actually laddering purpose into your business. And so we we work, we help clients work through what are the actual um, actions that you need to take in order to make this real. Um, we have a couple of different frameworks we use to think about like the small actions you can take, the quick wins, the big kind of iconic, we call them iconic actions that you can make to signal that this is important to you. And then from an organ culture standpoint, we think about those systemic components that you need to consider um, mm. from leadership modeling to uh, process design, to compensation and rewards, to rituals, to uh, reinforcement in terms of the signals and support that you provide your community. 
Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's a system thinking approach for uh, integrating the cultural change. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Um, uh, Kit, this has been amazing. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? No, I, I, I mean, I think, I think the one thing I would say to anyone listening is that it's all of this is a journey <laughs> and the most important piece of it is to understand where you are on that journey, understand where your organization is on that journey and think about moving forward. Um, and, and the only way to move forward is to understand what's actually under the surface, what's happening in terms of the power dynamics at your organization, in terms of what is said, what is unsaid. And so I just encourage people to be really curious about A, as leaders, if you're a leader listening to this, how you can improve the organizational system to build one that you're proud of. And as anyone working within an organization, what what role you can play in shaping that organizational system from wherever you sit. Awesome. And if people want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kit Krugman. Um, and you can find us at co at cocollective.com. And, um, and then uh, I'm trying to think where else. Trust me, you don't want my Instagram. It's just pictures of my son. So <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Beautiful, Kit. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Have a blessed and beautiful day and I'll, I'll see you on the other side. Okay. Sounds Bye. good. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.